1: Dr. Ruth, thanks for being here. Thank you. You're always such a grateful and positive person. I have no complaints about being Dr. Ruth in the United States. Haha, <laughs> Dr. Ruth. You're one of the few that saw my romance unfold with the 127-year-old bearded carnival girl. Oh, boy. <laughs> when you say the appeal, it was immediate. Yeah, our chemistry was strong. Even her bike-riding bear liked me was very learned oh she ate books she was a widow yeah the lion-faced four-legged man remember we met at their wedding and you looked fantastic oh stop i don't know how to dress some people are fashion conscious i'm fashion unconscious you get an a no it's maybe an a plus oh stop you're such a charmer uh can i come to see you what do you mean like personally to a date oh stop we're not gonna date i bought you a brand new guitar you bought me a new guitar well then let's do it maybe to some extent it's a it's a wonderful simple life we can live by the sea and strum the guitar happily it's very interesting it is interesting there. It's episode 20. This week we've got New York City licensed psychologist Dr. Julie Groveman. She gives us some helpful tools for our mental state, ones that I hope will come in handy, to improve your life, or at least maintain it. Because maintenance is work. It's like I always say. Gotta work just to maintain. And if you want to get ahead, it takes even more work. Not just with mental stuff, but almost anything. The rent. Gotta maintain the roof. Alright, if you want to check her out, go to drjuliegroveman.com. Hope you enjoy the conversation with me, Matt Kaplan, and Dr. Julie Groveman. Alright. Well, thank you for coming and being here.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Yes, Julie. Thank you. You're uh, probably the most educated person that has not only been in the podcast, but been in my personal space.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Yeah.
1: I mean, you have a uh, degree from Boston University and you got your master's and your doctorate.
2: Yes. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: And you're, you're like me because you have been bicoastal. You lived in the East Coast, but you lived in San Francisco as well.
2: I did. I I feel like I'm still from the West Coast, even though I was born here, Mm -hmm. because I'm not used to the cold weather anymore. My skin, it feels like it's changed since I've lived in San Francisco. And I'm just naturally a little more laid back and used to a slow pace. So for me, being in New York has been a little more of an adjustment since I've been back.
1: Yeah. Did you grow up in uh, Boston where you went to college?
2: I grew up in New York. I'm from Westchester. Okay. Larchmont.
1: Was it hard for you to move to San Francisco to study, to get your master's and your uh, doctorate?
2: No, I was actually really up for an adventure. And I didn't know anyone when I moved there. I just... Got on a plane and I was just ready for a change from the cold weather blizzards in Boston. I was just ready to have a change.
1: Did you find the people in San Francisco really different than the East Coast people?
2: In San Francisco, most people aren't born in San Francisco that Mm -hmm. I was around. Yeah. So they'd be coming in from somewhere, and they'd be living there for just a short time. It is
1: a very transient city, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I lived there for four years, and I think I only know about one person left. They've all moved on. (laughs) It's kind of sad, because I can only visit that one person now.
2: Yeah. I... I really liked the people there, but mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I could easily connect to a lot of people in the way that I've connected with people in New York.
1: What, what do you think? Why is that? Or what is it about the hard to connect thing?
2: Just to preface, I went there for graduate school for psychology. Right. So hanging out with a bunch of psychologists is not the most fun thing. So I didn't, I kind of veered away from why,
1: that. Why is that? I, you, I would think that you would t- be talking about. Matters of the heart and the mind with psychologists.
2: If you're around a lot of psychologists, a lot of times the conversations are a little too analytical and they Mm. can get a little too um, clinical. A little too clinical and talking about things that are overwhelming that we dealt with during the day. Or a lot of times I like to take a break from that when I'm with people and I like to talk about something completely different. And that's the funniest thing when I meet people who here I'm a psychologist, they first say like, oh no, let me s- slow down and not say too much. At first, if they if they don't know many psychologists personally, right. they might say, oh, I'm nervous, you're going to psychoanalyze me.
1: But are, aren't we doing that to people all the time anyway? When we meet someone, we're getting to know them, we're kind of evaluating the person that they are.
2: I think everyone has judgments that they come up with naturally, and that's part of just you know, determining what you think about something or somebody. So I do, I think that whether you're a psychologist or not, you have these thoughts that pop up in your mind about people all the time.
1: Yeah. Do you find that there's a difference in the way you uh, see people now that you have all the study and education behind you?
2: I think if anything, I'm a lot more understanding Mm. and a lot more Mm open-minded and it's hard to surprise me. I, I think I've heard probably everything and and you know, lived bu- beyond my time S- because I am a psychologist. I I've, I've heard things that you know, I've never been through myself and that people around me haven't been through. Mm-hmm. So Like
1: what? What's the worst thing?
2: The worst thing, okay, what first popped into my mind because I've told my brother this story before when I came home when I was living in San Francisco. And I came home for a vacation. Uh, I was working in a community clinic mm-hmm. in a very diverse area. And I had someone tell me that they had been in jail before and that they were so addicted to drugs mm-hmm. and they were unable to be without the drug mm-hmm. that they found a way to smuggle their drugs through this is sounds horrible, and I don't want to repeat it because it could almost give me uh, just the thought of it is so overwhelming. But they had put drugs into a dog mm-hmm. and um, and had to cut through the dog to get the drugs out of the dog. And the, the person who did this, uh-huh. who was telling me this, had a huge scar on her arm because she ha- developed a flesh eating disorder because of what she did and at the time it didn't bother her she just wanted the drugs mm-hmm. uh, was
1: it the drug that caused the flesh eating virus
2: i think it was her going through the this animal and actually i it's don't like an know un, enough
1: unsterile surgery
2: a completely right, yeah. unsterile whether it was her using the drug through a through a some type of a
1: Unclean needle?
2: Unclean needle, yeah. or it was her putting her hand into an a- animal that was just completely.
1: Would the dog die in the process?
2: The dog died. Yeah, this, this whole story it was very hard for me, to, someone who loves dogs. Yeah. You know, and that's the key with psychology is really, um, really listening to the person and not putting your own judgments and my own experience into, you know, when I'm listening to this woman tell me this. I'm not thinking of my dog right. that I have at home and I'm just hearing how desperate she was to get the drug or
1: the feeling of like I want to kill this person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean you kind of have to you have kind of have to compartmentalize your feelings and your emotions while you're hearing these things I'm sure.
2: Yeah, it's tricky at first but I think I was naturally kind of born to be a psychologist I don't know if you've heard that from people before but mm-hmm. it was very it was not hard for me to separate myself from what someone else was telling me and I wouldn't go home and dwell on it or or um I, I could easily separate myself go home at the end of the day and just do what I normally do
1: what kind of uh things would psychological things would you say you specialize in
2: I specialize in depression, mm-hmm. anxiety. I have a special interest in social anxiety, mm. public speaking phobia, body image issues, mm-hmm. um, you know gender roles and expectations specific to women's issues
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um,
1: are there certain patterns that you see when you uh, see people and you hear their stories over and over? you start to see certain patterns and you feel like you know you. Can, how to deal with them?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd say like seeing a number of people around the same age, let's say, mm-hmm. with body image issues, it's very, you start to pick up themes that you're noticing. And uh, also, I would say that, but also not the same age. You can hear the same type of a uh, theme from someone much older who comes from a much different background that has the same kind of, Theme, and I would say it varies place to place. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was living in San Francisco, actually, I'm going to back up. I wouldn't say it varies place to place. You could be in a very poor area, very Mm -hmm. diverse, and then also now, just in comparison, I'm working in the Upper East Side, I see very similar trends.
0: With
1: people in the Upper East Side. With people in the Upper
2: East Side. And believe it or not, they have all the resources, and they still have similar concerns.
1: Mm -hmm. As far as depression, I mean, uh, Matt and I are in the art world. We deal with We're around a lot of artists, and artists are notoriously depressed people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a musician for many years, and... uh, I was just talking to a friend about this recently. I feel like when I played music, like when I when I write a song, I tend to write kind of a brooding, sad, melancholy song. And my thing in the past has always been like, well, I'll turn my depression into happiness. You know, I'll turn this sadness into like something beautiful and melancholic. But um now that I've been doing stand-up comedy, I've found that I'm way less moody. And uh, I wonder, I've been starting to think that maybe I've just been, I was exercising that muscle all those years playing music of like, for some reason when I sat down with a guitar, I would just uh, vent my sadness. And maybe I was just clicking on that sadness muscle all the time, that it was actually perpetuating it and making me more moody. And now for some reason, I just, I'm considerably less moody. My mood swings are much more stable.
2: It reminds me of positive psychology. So if we're really focused on the sadness, even though it can create beautiful things, and I think a lot of incredible art has come from a lot of negative emotions, so not taking away from that, but I think if we are focusing a lot on the sadness, and even if you're trying to channel that through the music, that still is kind of giving you a certain vibe that you're staying with, Mm -hmm. rather than... In comedy, just humor is so important for people to release I mean, positive emotions, negative emotions, and if we're focused more on the positive, that's going to uplift our mood. And you know, seeing the reaction from people laughing, I think, is also such a high you can get—just that immediate response from someone.
1: Yeah, it leaves me in a conflict though, because you know, when you have problems or if you're dealing with depression, you should not just go dance necessarily you have to deal with your depression you know you have to face it straight on and I guess that's where the conflict is like sure I'm dealing with issues and stuff and stand up absolutely but I guess I'm not focusing so much on the sadness that might be there somewhere whether it's subconscious or not
2: so you're you're saying you're not able to really process the sadness the same way when you're kind of transforming it into a joke or
1: it's almost like it's a it's like i'm not stoking it with a stick anymore so it's subdued when i was playing music it was like more i was like i was like stoking it like a you know just like hey you're still there here let's turn it into something beautiful is part of that just age and maturity as well
3: i mean when you were deeper into writing songs you were 10 years younger and not, I, not
1: necessarily, because it's just been a few years. Like within the past, I don't know, four years. And even now, when I uh, sit down and play, I start to feel that feeling again, and it makes me a little moody when I sing and play guitar. You need more
3: major chords in your in your songs, man. <laughs> 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 yeah, I should only write with major chords.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah. actually very healthy to let yourself feel whatever you're feeling, but there is a. But There's that's the point. confusion.
1: Is it there or am I stoking it and bringing it to life?
2: Stoking it with your
1: my musical music. stick. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you know, it's it's hard to know, but mm-hmm. when people listen to your music, do they have a sad feeling when they hear it? Is it a sad do they get that sadness?
1: Probably everyone gets their own feeling from it. But a common uh, thread would be that it's uh, a duality of sad and happy because sometimes mm-hmm. the sounds are pretty upbeat, even though the melodies and lyrics can be a little sad. Mm-hmm. But it's also like um, like uh, with depressed people, they say you, know, you end up, a lot of depressed people end up in a mental loop. You know, they sit there and they can't get out of bed because they're thinking about how depressed they are. And then they just end up staying in bed and it makes it worse. What they need to do is get up, get some exercise, run around, be around people. It's almost a similar thing. It's like you end up in that loop. I'm sitting there and I'm I'm focusing on my sadness and trying to turn it into something good. But I'm really still focusing on the sadness and I think it was perpetuating it
2: yeah yeah if you're it's kind of like you're stuck in that negative cycle where it kind of feels comfortable to play the music because it's making you release that emotion, but also it's like keeps you stuck in that feeling for a while
1: but it is doesn't that speak to the opposite of what we're supposed to do like if we have a feeling we're supposed to face it head on
2: so the opposite i would what I would tell someone so if someone came in to see me and i and they were saying you know when they're depressed they tend to play music because it helps get out their emotion but then they can kind of stay dwelling in that emotion and then they could let's say stay home the whole day playing their song by themselves i would say that it's it's healthy to a certain point mm-hmm. to let yourself stay in that feeling and then it's not healthy to dwell and isolate so i would say getting up giving yourself a certain amount of time to do something like that to process it, allow yourself to feel what you're feeling, and then do something the opposite, like the opposite of how you're feeling. This is called opposite action.
1: Opposite action.
2: Yeah, that's a tool that we would use, which Mm is saying even though you feel like staying home and being on the couch and chilling out and not seeing anyone, you do the absolute opposite, which would be going... I mean, this is an extreme opposite. Running around the block, you probably that's the last thing you feel like doing.
1: Right, but it does create endorphins and can change your mood.
2: Yeah, or listening to a funny tape that you like to listen to, Mm -hmm. some comedy.
1: Right. I I think also people confuse,
3: and you can speak to this much better than I can, the difference between like, I'm feeling depressed and actual like clinical depression. Yeah. So I think, Gary, what you were saying in those cases, you were just feeling down. You were feeling sad. It wasn't depression where you're basically like, Stuck in your room, can't get out of bed, and basically just waiting to die.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's an, so people can say, I feel depressed, and that's a feeling, but to actually be clinically depressed, it's interfering with your daily life to the point where you're, you know, it might impact your job, where you're not able to keep a job or your relationships, you're not able to maintain relationships.
1: But depression's weird because sometimes you could be depressed about something in particular, death in the family, a breakup, something like that. And sometimes you could be depressed and nothing's changed. Like this is something Mm -hmm. I tell myself, if I get depressed, I'm like, all right, you're depressed, but you were happy last week and absolutely nothing in your life is any different. So I try to be like, well, okay, well maybe my depression is just like some chemical wave that came over and hey, there's no reason for it because you were happy last week and things are the same.
2: Yeah, I think what happens is people don't like to feel negative emotions. Mm-hmm. They don't like to feel down or tired, and that's not normal to not feel those emotions. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's not fun to feel down and depressed. But it just like looking at a painting with all these different pic- different colors. Yeah, you need. Darkness in order to appreciate light, Right. and you need all the colors. So a lot of times people say, "I just want to feel happy. I just want to feel upbeat and excited, and positive emotions." That that wouldn't be healthy, and it wouldn't be normal for someone. So that's something that's important to keep in mind. There may be no trigger for why, as a human, you get down sometimes. It's completely normal.
1: You ever get? Uh, do you call them patients or clients?
2: I call them patients, but but we don't need to call. We can say um, clients here.
1: Okay. Do you ever get uh, clients that come to you and, you know, one week they're depressed about this and the next week they're depressed about that and you start to hear the same kind of thing where you're like, you know, they're they're just finding things to be depressed about and it's almost a mask for something else
2: i lo- I don't like to say that I thought fi- that someone's finding reasons to be depressed mm-hmm. because there's usually something else that th- they're missing or there's a void for them um, or clinically, if someone has depression, this is nothing to do with what they are looking for right. It's I- almost like um if someone's wearing sunglasses all the time when they have depression, they're seeing things really negatively and they don't have. The insight to know that
1: right. It's it's like they they think they know what's bothering them, but when you hear it over and over, you start to see that it's that's not really it. You know, they're not right. seeing the true cause of it. Right. I guess that's your job, right?
2: Yeah, it's like shining a light on something and having someone say, "Okay, every day to day, I'm unhappy at work, or um, I'm annoyed with my boyfriend," but really underneath, usually it's something about something that happened much you know, way long ago that maybe they they're not aware of or that they've been avoiding and just don't want to think about it.
1: Well the funny thing is is that people almost always and you probably see this, they're almost always in their own way. It's like they mm-hmm. are the cause of their problems.
2: Yeah. Right? It's mm-hmm. like
1: Matt, for example, you know? <laughs> <laughs> He's a shiny beacon of that.
2: <laughs> You're always in your own way.
3: I think we all are. <laughs> You know, I, I think maybe not always, but I think uh, most of us are we're our, our own worst enemy, getting in our own way. Uh, life can be easy. We can attain goals. And yes, people do have certain things that are really hard to get past for one reason or another. But it's another. impossible but, to see it yourself. Yeah, I think the average person creates the, their most of their own obstacles.
2: I, I've seen a lot of people who are their worst critic and mm-hmm. who don't who aren't a friend to themselves and that's i think really hard because things happen in life all the time that we don't have control over and if you're not a friend to yourself and if you're the one every day that comes home to yourself your voice being very harsh and critical that's that's really lousy and that's defeating in itself
1: yeah well here here's, here's an example what if someone is just depressed because they don't have a rich social life or you know they're lonely but then they don't want to go out and put themselves out there. How do you deal with that person?
2: I hear this all the time, mm-hmm. so I'll just say that this is, the first thing I say is that this you're not alone, especially, we'll just say, within Manhattan. I grew up here, so I, I personally can't relate because I, I know a bunch of people that I've always known here. But for anyone who's moved here or is shy and, and it's hard to put yourself out there in a very busy city. It's completely normal and understandable that it's overwhelming to try to meet people. Mm -hmm. And I, the first thing I would say is that this is not going to be easy and it's going to be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. because a lot of times someone might want to have friends and may want to, Put themselves out there, but they don't do things that would put them in the position. Like they're staying home all the time. Yeah. Which, again, I completely. But how do they get the courage
1: to get up and get out? Like, I -hmm. tell myself this thing, I remind myself of this thing to make myself feel comfortable outside of my comfort zone. So I'm trying to, like, do NLP, you know, neuro linguistic programming of like when I feel uncomfortable. I recognize that I feel uncomfortable, but instead of running away, I've reprogrammed my brain to be like, oh, this is good. This is where you want to be.
2: I like that saying a lot because fear is telling you something you're doing is like you're doing homework on yourself Mm -hmm. because any type of change isn't easy. So if you want to change something about yourself or your personality or your habits, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, it probably means you're not doing anything that would that would help change your situation
1: right it's like we keep having the same reaction oh discomfort run something's wrong but that's just a reaction and we repeat the same thing but if you can kind of reprogram yourself to not react the same way you've reacted the whole your your whole life you can kind of that's that's growth isn't it yeah growth is like experiencing something new
2: yeah i i was told actually my mom told me this a while ago that Looking at, let's say, your fear as a friend of yours that's been with you for a long time. It's not new, the feeling that you're having. It's kind of like you've known this old friend for a long time. They're annoying. You don't want to be around them, but they're not going anywhere. Fear
1: is the annoying friend. Fear, So
2: (laughs) you say, you know, they're on your shoulder. Let them just kind of sit with you through this experience and let them, the more we resist something, the harder it is to do it. So kind of go with a. Go with the fear and let it ride, you know, ride it out. And a lot of times with anxiety, anxiety and fear, I'm just going to use kind of, um, they're very closely related.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You, the feeling will peak and then it's going to go down. So your body can't stay at a 10 for too long. Right. So just reminding yourself that the feeling will pass if you just let it, you know, let it pass
1: on its own what's uh what's a what's a good example of someone being in their own way besides being uh lonely or and not
3: going out i think fear social anxiety self-doubt self-criticism i think those are all things i can't do that i'm not good enough who am i to do that right is that is that what you mean yeah i was just curious what would yeah i mean that's that's what you know hurts me and and destroys many people i know yeah and where does that voice come is it something you created are you hearing a voice that either a parent or a teacher or someone else told you at one point um but it's it's hard things to get past and i think most people
1: suffer from that one way or the other well what what do you what would you tell a person or how would you you kind of have to steer a person sometimes i mean if you if someone's coming to you and you see that they're just in their own way And all they have to do is shift their mental state a little bit, shift their mindset. How do you kind of, you kind of have to trick them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you trick them into seeing it themselves? Because you can't just tell them, you're in your own way, you idiot.
2: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, if someone's saying they want to have friends and they want a richer social life, but at the same time, they're not stepping out of their comfort zone they're not leaving home Mm -hmm. they're they're comfortable in their space
1: what about like someone that just doesn't go for something they they have they they want to attain something whether it's uh some role or some job or whatever but they don't think they're worthy of it they're like i'm not going to get that that's um, that's i'm not good enough
2: it's a, it's a risk that you need to take, or it won't it won't happen. And I think a lot of times that there's a saying: acting as if you feel a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard when you're so used to feeling crappy and worthless, and um, n- like you're undeserving of some really great thing. For you to all of a sudden just feel differently is probably not going to happen. Right. There's nothing I could say. There's nothing friends can say. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a tool, and it, I just thought of it, where you say, you know, you're going to act as if yeah. you felt more confident, or how would someone, if, you, if they were more confident, mm-hmm. how would we know that? What would they be doing differently? So a lot of times, that's kind of the kind of work I'll do with someone to say, and, and a lot of times, people doubt this.
1: So that's kind of a tool you're giving them.
2: Yes, to, you know, even though acting, it, you might think, oh, that's not being genuine, if I'm acting as if I feel confident but I don't really am I not being genuine or authentic right but I would say no because people don't just overnight become something yeah they need to they need to kind of observe other people who are confident observe other people who are getting the things that they wish they had and experiment with it and, and it takes time to develop new ways of being
1: so you're saying fake it till you make it
2: yeah well, I, I, I think
1: at the same time <laughs> for
3: someone who's saying well that's not really me A person being uh, socially anxious is not really the best of who they are as well. Mm -hmm. So might as well go further the other way.
2: Yes, exactly. So it's trying things out that you've seen work before for other people. And maybe for them it doesn't feel natural. But nothing feels natural until you've done it a couple times, until you practice it. Then it starts feeling like, oh, maybe this is something that I'm comfortable with.
3: What do you do if you're talking to a patient, a client, And you really feel this is just an unlikable person. This person is an asshole. (laughs) And like, how can you blame everyone else for not really liking this person?
2: I would say it happens very infrequently that (laughs) that happens to me. But I think that it's you're taking in information about how this person relates to other people in the world, and it's important to know. I'm using myself as a tool that, however I'm feeling with a person, likely they're getting those reactions and responses from people all the time. I'm trying to, when I have someone that I I have a feeling that they're just unlikable and they're a jerk to people, let's say, and they're blaming everybody— it all started from somewhere. And so trying to see when was that hurt or when was that rejection or kind of trying to investigate a little bit. How
1: do you, how do you get there?
2: Well, I, I, any person I meet, I really am trying to just understand them from mm-hmm. the beginning and hearing what their life was like when they were a kid, what their family was like.
1: Um, Are you, do you ask like certain targeted questions if you see where the root of the problem might be?
2: I'm always going to try to gather information the first time I meet with someone mm-hmm. just to get to know them and, and, you know, going at their own pace, whatever they feel comfortable with sharing. But yeah, I think that if, you know, if, if someone's saying that they're always blamed, if it sounds like they're so angry at others and they're blaming everyone, going back to really what that was like for them in the very beginning of their life and school or with friends and and their experience in their family and keeping it open I I try to keep things as open as possible
1: right so you probably see a lot of self-pity in people
2: feeling bad for themselves about their situation
1: yeah and the self-pity itself is keeping them from feeling better and living a more fruitful life
2: yeah a lot of times we talk to ourselves in a certain way and I think you were mentioning that um you know we hear these ways of talking to ourselves that are self-doubt and it might be someone else's voice or it might be our own voice really trying to you know the self-pity is sometimes something we've adopted from somewhere maybe our parent used to talk mm-hmm. to themselves like that and we heard that mm-hmm. or we were talked down to like that and now it's just our way of being and so a lot of times people come in with all these layers and you're just trying to really help them see which ones are the ones that are serving them at so
1: this you, point. you might shine a light on that self-pity that they might have and be like oh that you're, you're reminding me of your mother right now and then they if they see themselves in their mother and they don't like that aspect of their mother then they can kind of cure that in themselves is that what you're saying
2: yeah, and I think it's a challenge. I think knowing that that's where that part of them might stem from hearing their mother talk to themselves like this or that or talking to herself like that, it can become, it can be hard to, to realize something like that. So mm-hmm. it takes time. Therapy, I would say, is not something that Overnight, people change these big behaviors or patterns. Yeah, but it is about shining light with someone who's really patient and understanding. And my role is really just to be like a sounding board, right? And to also point out things that I'm noticing and and work together as a team.
1: Well, that whole uh, acting as if uh, tool, it's interesting because it is like neuro linguistic programming. You're just kind of programming your brain to act like it's okay and then all of a sudden your brain just starts being that way which is what psychotropic drugs do right right it's pretty much the same thing but um it's funny because that's kind of what you see in uh, improv and stand-up comedy or maybe even any performer you know when you first start doing it you're not confident at it but no one wants to see a stand-up comic go up and be really nervous or an improviser be nervous so everyone on that stage is faking confidence even though they're public speaking which is terrifying
2: Right.
1: <laughs> right. So, but then eventually you keep faking the confidence and then they become confident. Yes. And for for some performers, they have to continue doing that their
3: whole career. Right. Some, some performers never really get the confidence. Ugh, hopefully, it's not like that for any people in daily life. Some, you know presidents, world leaders never fully have confidence and they're always trying to fake it.
1: Yeah, it's like every parent, too. Every parent, you know, Mm -hmm. they have to act like they know how to raise this child, but they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) They're just winging it.
2: Yeah, so the thing that I think is interesting about that is that what's wrong with being nervous and Mm -hmm. what... Why are we so afraid to get up and have someone notice that we're nervous? Or so that's the other part of, uh, I loved about improv is that you can mess up and you can fail and you're fine. Mm-hmm. You end up seeing that that doesn't last forever. And that scene will be over soon. And then you have a new scene and maybe people don't remember that you did that. Right. But at, at the same time, I think that getting past that your world will be over if you're nervous and people notice. And, and that's part of, I think, underneath the social anxiety and the fear of public speaking, a lot of times is seeing that you'll survive it. And that's part of being human that you, that happens.
1: Isn't a lot of that ego, You know, just people's ego of not wanting to fail or look stupid.
2: Yeah, I do. I think so. Part of your critical, you know, being afraid of other people's judgments of you.
1: Yeah. I used to host an open mic. And, you know, at open mics, you get such a wide array. You get, like, total freaks that can never get it together to do an actual performance. Then you get people that are actually, like, really good and polished. But one thing I noticed from doing the hosting the open mic was that the people that got up there and were fearless... Were the people that had no ego. And they'd get off stage and they'd be like, you know, dressed like an idiot, maybe, or just like a little bit off, but they were just free. And it was the people that were like, you know, put together and kind of had their act together, they would have more ego about them. I just kind of found it fascinating.
2: And who did you feel the audience was more receptive to or that seemed like they were more engaged?
1: I feel like when an audience sees someone that's totally free, they're attracted to it. But if they're too free, where they're not a little bit grounded in reality, or, or that ego, the audience is a little freaked out, whether that's intimidation, or just freaked out because it's not the norm, I don't know. But like you take someone like Jimi Hendrix, I mean, Jimi Hendrix is like so free, when he plays the guitar, he's just so liberated on stage. But he's got his swagger. Mm-hmm. you know he's not like some total freak off the sidewalk that's just totally free in their expression and they're maybe just like a little too free
2: yeah if you <laughs> didn't care at all what people thought mm-hmm. and you didn't have any anxiety you wouldn't that wouldn't be good either so uh-huh. i think being too free i would relate it to there's like a spectrum of the optimal level of anxiety where if you have no anxiety you're in bed all day because you don't care enough. You're not worried enough to, let's say, get up and do things for yourself or, you know, pay the bills or, you know, you don't want zero anxiety because that's not motivating. But having a little bit is like getting dressed in a way that you want to give a good impression that you're comfortable with or, you know, caring enough to call that person that you want to talk to. Um having butterflies before you get up on stage is normal because you want people to like what you're going to say. If you didn't care at all, then you'd be, that wouldn't be great. So I think knowing that some anxiety is really motivating for people or else they wouldn't prepare for things.
1: See, that's so, it's usually, that's usually the answer. It's never like all of one thing or all of another. It's usually somewhere in between. Yes. Yeah, I'm very wary of extremes, so it's like usually a happy medium is the happy place. But yeah, that's interesting. It, it is good to be a little bit grounded in reality and care what other people think.
2: In comedy for you, is that a little bit caring what people think? Does that get you sometimes distracted if you're a comic getting up? and?
1: Yeah, I think I tend to veer on that side of caring what people think too much. Yeah, it's, that's, that's my challenge is, you know, being a little more free the other way.
2: Yeah, I I feel like I can relate to the person if I feel like I feel like that person is thinking about the audience or is thinking about if anyone gets up, I feel like that really, for me is a courageous thing to get up in front of people to begin with. So I'm more in this I'm really always thinking, how are they doing this to begin with? How can they feel so brave? And and if they didn't care at all, I think that would that would be uncomfortable or almost puzzling to me.
1: Yeah, well, there's definitely two kinds of stand-up comics. There's definitely there's the kind that are going up for them, you know, to just uh, satisfy their own whatever. Yeah, I don't want to say ego because that sounds judgmental. But to satisfy their own art form or whatever, then I'm I'm trying to do this thing where I, before I go up, I remind myself that I'm there for the audience. So, I don't know if that's good or not, but it do, it is helping me stay out of my own head of like, oh, how am I doing? Blah blah blah. It's more like I'm focused on them, and that's kind of helping. You ever know someone that's uh, what's the word for this? They're just compulsive liars, or uh, it's like. Uh, Psycho, not so they're like so. Ah, oh, damn, what's the word? But they're kind of like they just lie for no reason. Sociopath. Yes, that's that's yeah. the word. Sociopath. I know some sociopaths, and uh, it's truly baffling because sometimes we're talking about them caring what other people think or not. Sometimes they're so I can't relate because they're they compulsively lie about totally trivial things. And it's almost like they're lacking a sort of introspection or emotion. Is this a clinical? I mean, sociopathic is some sort of clima, clinical. I would, thing, right? so
2: I don't know many compulsive liars personally, mm-hmm. and I actually have not met many in my work. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine when you say sociopathic, meaning that they don't have much empathy for someone or the conscience, which is so normal that we need to be able to monitor what we're doing and our, how it's going to impact someone else so someone who is not having that empathy for someone may not care what they're doing or saying to anyone mm-hmm. so someone who's lying all the time they don't they don't have that part of their conscience to really feel bad for someone or imagine what they might be going through if they if they're lying to them
1: what would you do for someone like that if you have someone on your couch that you feel is uh not being totally honest with you?
2: If I feel like the person's not being totally honest with me about what they're saying. Yeah,
1: maybe they're trying to impress you. They're caring too much what you think. They're putting on a show for you.
2: Okay. (laughs) I think that with that, it's, it's first in therapy, the most important thing is that you're able to feel like you can talk about anything that you want and that you can not be afraid to say the most embarrassing thing. And so if I feel like someone is trying to make an impression or it tells me also that they have like a perfectionistic part of them where they want to give an image, and that's the the last thing that therapy... I mean, you will not be getting the most out of it if you're not able to show all the parts of yourself. So I might talk less about me feeling like they're not being honest, and I would just point out that really they can get the most out of... I feel like they're withholding something... Uh And that they could get the most out of our time if they just talked about what's really going on with them.
1: Would you say that to them? Like, what would you say to them? Would you, would you call them on and be like, I feel like you're putting on a show for me.
2: It depends how long I've known the person. Mm -hmm. And if I'm still just trying to get to know them, I wouldn't, I would probably tread lightly that this is someone I'm just trying to, you know, maybe there's a reason they're uncomfortable and they're. Feel too vulnerable and it's too, you know, it's a lot to open up to someone that you've never met before and just tell them all these details about your life. It's actually, believe it or not, not as hard for most people as you would think.
1: Oh, I believe that people love to talk about themselves.
2: People love to talk about themselves with a stranger who it really won't, you know, it won't, it will be left exactly where you leave it. I I say to people, you're leaving something with me and just, you know, you feel lighter after you leave. It's a, a safe session. space,
1: no repercussions.
2: It's completely confidential, and it's someone objective outside of your circle of friends and family.
1: Mm-hmm. I've been to a bunch of therapists, and at this point, it's getting tiresome giving the whole backstory.
2: I can understand that.
1: Yeah. So it's, having
2: to repeat yourself and your history.
1: Yeah, it's... it's. Uh, I, I think... And I don't think I'm the only one here. I think someone that's been to a bunch of different therapists, you start to kind of get, all right, maybe I could do one more, but I can't do it again. The whole backstory and the same kind of things. You need to arrive with like a flash drive of your your airpister and just plug it right into
3: the doctor. (laughs) That would be amazing.
2: Well, have you ever asked a therapist to talk to the person you worked with before just so that they had a chance to hear... From them, so you don't have to fill them in on everything.
1: Wow, that would be really interesting. I've never heard of that before, but it makes sense. It's like passing your x-rays from one doctor to another.
2: Yes. It just makes sometimes that process smoother.
1: Is that a thing?
2: That is a thing. So you can... I've had... Different patients say to me, you know, I worked with this person, maybe they moved. Mm. And the only reason they're changing therapists is because it just doesn't make sense with where they're living now. Mm -hmm. I will say, okay, well, this person was meaningful to you for several years. It's important that we also touch base. And I just am able to speak with them if they're comfortable with it. But a lot of times I think people want like that bridge so that they can feel like they're going to hear the most important things that they worked on together.
1: Do you, do you take notes? Do you have files on your clients?
2: I do. Everything's confidential, mm-hmm. and I have it um, at my office. So that's something that is important also, just so that you're able to track someone's progress, not right. only to just say sometimes the, a brief snip of what happened, but just so you reflect on where you've been with that Patient.
1: So if someone's switching psychologists, would you hand your file over to the new one?
2: I wouldn't do that unless that person asked me to do that. if they did ask you, you would. If they did ask me, um, it's their right as mm-hmm. a patient to have those to have that file mm-hmm. given to their current therapist, but I wouldn't, you know, unless it was something I felt like was really needed Mm -hmm. because the other part of this is that someone's starting over, like turning a new leaf with a new therapist. And so maybe there are certain things you need, you would like to be communicated and shared about your history. Uh, There are also times where I've uh, let's say ended therapy with a patient. They made a lot of progress. And I said, um, you know, if you do begin therapy with someone else, that's a new opportunity for you at the point you're at now.
1: You've ended therapy with somebody.
2: Yes, I've ended therapy with somebody. I mean, I've in my time in San Francisco, I've had many patients I've had to end with because I was moving, mm-hmm. and I've worked in Queens, um, Jamaica Hospital. Mm-hmm. So there are times where your times, you know, at a certain clinic comes to an end, and you have to terminate services with.
1: You ever end uh, end a client because? you either didn't want to see them anymore, maybe they were just too exhausting, or you felt like you weren't uh, the right fit for them?
2: I, when I was uh, at a clinic in San Francisco, there have been times where I was in training at that time. So Mm -hmm. I was really, um, you know, the most important thing is a patient therapist match. So if you don't feel like you're a good match for someone, or if the person doesn't feel like you're a good match for them, it's very important after a few sessions to say, to come to that um, conclusion together and to talk about it and to find them someone new. So it wasn't because, you know, I didn't like them (laughs) or I didn't like hearing them or they were annoying or tiring. It was mainly because I didn't feel like I was the best fit for them. Or there have been times where someone didn't feel like I was the best fit for them and didn't come from me. And I think that that's great. I encourage when people, if they felt that way, The most important thing is that they're able to feel comfortable and heard.
1: But aren't some people just so exhausting that they should have to pay more?
2: (laughs) That's a good theory. I think that's great.
1: (laughs) Sliding (laughs) scale. Right, sliding
2: scale, because that that, that I don't think flies most of the time. But I think, sure, I, I can see where that would come from.
1: And you should have a separate office in your office where there's just like the tough love guy. And you just like just go in there for five minutes, and that guy just yells,
0: "Just get it together! Just get it!"
1: (laughs) Maybe that's what some people need. I
3: don't know. Uh, Yeah, sometimes I wonder if that's just what just to to battle the the voice that's doubting them. Maybe not as you know external as that, but I think sometimes we do need to internalize that tough love guy in our own heads. Yeah, a little bit of that military academy. Sure.
1: Sometimes, little little you know, take off the soft gloves, put on the hard ones.
2: When you're working with someone for enough time that mm-hmm. you really note feel like you're you have a good understanding of their patterns and you have a strong therapeutic relationship, it's easier to make those. Statements or to be able to really give someone direct feedback and say like, Hey, you're doing that again. Or this is, you know, really kind of calling attention to something as you
1: get more comfortable with that. As you get
2: more comfortable and as you really, you know, that wouldn't happen in the beginning of therapy with sure. someone because you don't really have a good sense. And just to know something about my style, I really don't give direct. Advice. That's mm-hmm. not something that I, you know, I, I'm I, i directive at times where I'm giving tools and strategies, but I don't think that it's fair for anyone to really tell someone else what to do because they're the expert in their life. What
1: if they want that and ask that of you?
2: If someone, at, well, again, it would depend how long I've known the person. Right. If it's someone I've worked with for a few years and I feel like they do need to be told, reiterating what they would have told me their goals are and I'll point them in the direction of you came here for, you know, in order to improve your social life and you've told me this is something you want. At the same time, you're really not doing the things that would put you in that direction. I'm happy to say, Hey, let's talk about why you came in here to begin with and, and really kind of point people back to the beginning of why we were working together. And also I'm, I'm comfortable with saying things that are sometimes hard to say to people.
1: Yeah, do you feel like you have to find each person's kind of breaking point, Mm -hmm. you know, and just kind of stay a little bit back from that? Because everyone has their own amount of what they can handle.
2: Yeah, everybody is different and everybody has a different threshold for what they are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to learn through, like therapy is a, a therapeutic relationship where you're learning as things happen. So if I say something that I realize got a really negative reaction. I'm learning from that experience with that specific person that maybe, you know, that isn't something that works for them. And the best thing that someone can do is to be able to be open with their therapist and tell them exactly what those triggers are or just to work through conflict together.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does.
1: Yeah, what would you just say? I'm, I'm curious about this like, sociopathic friend that I have. Would would you confront a sociopathic friend that you caught in a, such a frivolous, silly lie? Would you, say some, would you say something to them?
2: Well, my question for you would also be how, not how, why this person's still a good friend of yours if you're noticing that this is kind of the pattern that's been happening mm-hmm. because I know it would be it would be difficult to have a friend who was constantly lying about kind of trivial things and my guess is they wouldn't be honest with you if you confronted them about it
1: right right yeah there's that i guess with me i've been kind of like uh with some friends they're they have so much to offer in some realms and then they're terrible in other realms like i think a lot of artists find this like a lot of artists they might be friends with another artist and they're great they're inspiring people and they're great to be around but they sometimes make terrible friends. Like when you really need them in a time of trouble, they're just not there, they're in their own world. But these are still like great people to know and to have in your life.
2: Right, so that makes sense. So I would say that it's important to practice being assertive and to say to someone, hey, that's not cool that you just lied to me about that, and I'm just curious, did you intentionally do that or is this difficult for you know just kind of check in with the person Mm -hmm. i think if you're friends it's good practice to be able to talk about the things that bother you and also not pick up every little thing if you know this friend is great in you know one realm yeah he may not be someone you can rely on in other things and that might be just something to accept about that person
1: some people just aren't that introspective you know some people they don't really think so much about what's going on internally
2: It's true. Um, That's. I think that's why there are some friends who we can have those kind of conversations with, and Mm -hmm. and kind of if you know this about the person that, you know, this is part of them, and if you're gonna be friends with them, this is what they might be doing. They might be lying sometimes about trivial things, and just keeping that in mind when you're interacting with the person, or just kind of having that information and maybe not confronting them in a way where you're looking for much for from their end about their insight about it
1: yeah I guess I've been compartmentalizing some friends like they're here for this part of my life and then other friends I'll have like oh these are the good like reliable friends that I can have these talks with
3: yeah I think that's I think it's okay to manage your your friendships in different ways and manage your expectations. I mean, there are certain friends you can call up in the middle of the night and say, "I have an emergency." Others you wouldn't dare do that because you know you'd be disappointed. You'll right. get the machine. You'll get the machine. <laughs> you know, but that doesn't—that machine friend might be a hilarious friend and an inspiring friend to hang out with, so, right? You know, I think that's okay. And same thing with family. I guess you know, that's- which is something you certainly can't change. You can't say, "I'm gonna," you know, drop my my dad for a different dad. You know. Right. You can maybe ask your uh, mom to
1: remarry. Yeah. See. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't always work either. <laughs> no, sometimes stepdads can be worse.
2: But I, I'm, um, I advocate for people to speak out for themselves, mm-hmm. even with friends who you know is a certain way. A lot of times if we don't say something, someone doesn't know that this is bothering us. So... If you say something, maybe it sh- it plants a seed for them to say, okay, now I know this bothers them that I'm doing this. And if we don't say anything, nothing will change. So I, I like when people start to speak out a little bit more and that's part of having a healthy relationship.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because like, uh, especially Matt mentioned with parents, you know, uh, sometimes you can speak up and sometimes you just got to swallow it. You know, and uh, knowing when that, where that line is, is tough. Um, the gauge I've been using is like, if I really have to get something off my chest, it's almost selfish. It's like, okay, I'll bring it up if I really can't. Cause sometimes you don't think people, things are going to change, especially with parents. So that's when I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to say something because I know I'll feel better if I say something.
2: Mm-hmm. So you're, you're saying, lo- looking at the outcome that you want to have, whether this is going to help you to say this, or is it going to make it more difficult if you say this, what the consequence might be from bringing something up?
1: Yeah, there's that. And then there's also times when you don't think the out- it's going to change. Nothing's going right. to change. But you're like, you know what, I'm going to say it because I'll feel better getting it off my chest.
2: Exactly. I think that's sometimes what we need to do for ourselves, regardless of if the the person can change because most of the time we can't change anyone but ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a lot of times, very hard to accept. You see what this person can do. If only they did this life would be easier for you and for them. But unless they want that to happen, it doesn't matter what we say to them.
1: Do you think that, uh, people can't change and we can only change ourselves or maybe people can change sometimes.
2: Oh, so let me, um, clarify what I'm saying. I think we can change. I think people can change, Mm -hmm. but we can't change people. Mm. So people can change if they want to change. We can change if we want to change. We are people. We are people, (laughs) right? But I don't have control over my parents changing. I don't have control over my friend changing her behavior or really anybody changing. But
3: sometimes we can let them know what their actions, how they make us feel. And that can shine a light.
2: Yes, on, definitely. On, so, on their behavior. Yeah, we can. It can help us to get those feelings out there, get them off our chest, and you're shining a light on something that maybe in a week or a month from now they might decide to take in, right. or even that moment they could. But that's we don't have that control.
3: Right. Sometimes it's a shame that you can only have an intervention when there's like a a concrete drug or alcohol issue. You can't just be like, generally, mom, you're a dick. (laughs) You know, we've all come together. This is why we feel this way.
2: I mean, you could do that, but I don't, we haven't seen TV shows about that.
1: Let's get it done. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, there are definitely uh, a lot of problems that, probably worse than a drug addiction if someone's emotionally abusive or, you know, things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. This is an interesting time to be talking to you because the holidays are like such a fragile time for people's mental states.
2: Yes, it is a very stressful time. Even if it's a good stress, most of the time it's it's overwhelming for people.
1: Mm-hmm. Why is it that around the holidays? Is it the shopping? <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> I wish that was the only stress for people. A lot of times holidays brings up a lot of family memories or traditions that you know expectations about the holidays whether things were a certain way wanting them to be a certain way or even just being around family for Mm. most people is stressful and overwhelming unfortunately
1: yeah i also i wonder sometimes if it's also just like uh, the winter solstice and the new year because to me it feels almost chemical uh, like,
2: right. Like
1: I just want the new. I want it to be January fourth already. <laughs> I like. I want the new year to be like. All right, we're in the new year. It's happening. Let's just get over with it. It's this like transition. It's almost like I feel like I'm a cat. You know, and I like hate waiting. the transition. Yeah. yeah.
2: Like it's looming the mm-hmm. new year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the shorter date, the the dark coming sooner, and it being cold, and just that does something to your temperament and just the way you're feeling during the day. It's harder to get the energy to do things for many people. Um, and also a lot of loss comes up around the holidays, just feeling like, again, remembering things that were a certain way when your family did something a certain way. Maybe those people aren't around anymore. Mm-hmm. I would say the majority of people, unfortunately, really don't. You know, a holiday time is really difficult for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people get depressed around
3: the holidays. You- it's also, it's, it's the end of the year, so people might say like, these are the things I didn't get done this year. I haven't lost the 12 pounds. I didn't get a new job. You know, Things that they thought they'd like to do at the beginning of the year.
2: Yeah, I think people with depression, they will focus on really a lot of times Mm -hmm. those things that they wish they could have done or really seeing, but at the same time, maybe they didn't do those things, but they've done other things or even their efforts. They're really seeing things with the sunglasses on and and focusing on the negative.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you have some tools you can share um, for people that are dealing with depression?
2: Sure, yeah. And I really, I just want to say I love working with people with depression. Mm-hmm. It's something I've had a lot of training in. And in San Francisco, there was a big treatment center that I worked for. That was a depression treatment program mm-hmm. where it was intensive. Where there was it was unbelievable how many people have severe depression that really needed this program. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm used to talking to people with very uh, different levels of depression, where ranging from people who you know are unable to work at home, really a struggle just to get going, just to shower, do the basics. And then it ranges from people who may have a job or, you know, may have relationships, but it's still this really constant battle that is looming where they feel like they could slip back any minute into depression. So what I would say, number one, is just be a friend to yourself that depression is something you didn't do anything wrong. It affects many people and you're not alone in this, that this is something that people don't like talking about enough Mm -hmm. to know that this is part of life and it's a medical condition. I think it's important to really notice what helps you and to do more of that. So let's just say getting up in the morning and taking a shower wakes you up Mm -hmm. and helps you get going. Doing more of the things that make you feel good and whether it's, you know, some, I've had some people say just texting a few friends just to make that contact, because they tend to isolate. Right. That's just something, if they know it works, do more of that. Um, the opposite action I, I brought up before. So maybe you feel like you're so depressed, you're so tired, all you want to do is be on the couch and watch Netflix and do nothing. As much as that sounds great for an hour, but after that, I think you know, laying around and isolating for someone who has depression is really a recipe for feeling more depressed.
1: You can go down that hole.
2: You can go down that hole, and it just you know, your energy will really continue to drop if you're not moving around. So, opposite action would be doing the exact opposite of what you feel like doing. Mm. So, if you feel like isolating, uh, maybe go to a coffee shop sit down with a book but you're around other people. So, you know, we want to make this easier for you in a way that's pretty simple.
1: I like this opposite action thing. It's very clear and like, okay, this is what when you mm-hmm. when you can't think of what to do and you're just trapped by your own depression.
2: Yeah, and that's I think just that's what it feels like. It's a very trapped feeling where you just feel like you're kind of frozen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And moving your body, simple thing like just taking a walk for someone is such a, is just being outside, being aware of what's around you, that can really take you out of your negative thoughts and feeling trapped. So I tell people to exercise, again, acknowledging that's the last thing that you would want to do when you're feeling depressed, but that's what's really going to help.
1: Yeah. Um, A lot of people don't really understand depression. They just think, get over it. Life's not so bad. Just... Get over it, you know, and I had it, I I heard an interview with Sarah Silverman, she put it really well, and talking about her depression, comparing it to like a flu, like when the flu comes over you, you just like, oh, here it is, I'm sick, and that is how she described her depression, and when I heard her describe it that way, I was like, oh, now, that makes a lot of sense, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people don't understand it in that way.
2: Yeah, I think that it feels refreshing, believe it or not, when you're with other people with depression and you have depression. Mm-hmm. You kind of finally feel like people get it in a different way, where they, they're not expecting things of you that are not, you know, when someone has depression and they're in a depressive episode, they cannot do the things that they were once able to do. It's just their expectation to, let's say, do their to-do list isn't going to happen. Right. So if someone who doesn't have depression, who doesn't understand that, that's very hard to talk to someone, um, like a family member who doesn't really get it, that you can't just snap out of it when you would feel like it. I mean, it's just, it, it takes time and, and patience.
1: Do you ever do uh, group things where you get depressed people together?
2: So I did that in San Francisco. I would love to do that kind of a thing mm-hmm. here. And I'm working in the Upper East Side. And, you know, the the challenge, I think, a lot of times is the stigma that people feel about being in a group, about going and talking about their concerns with other people. But believe it or not, it is the number one way to really get out of something like depression when you're with other people and you show up to a place where other people can really relate to you.
1: And this is something people can contact you with.
2: Yeah, so you can contact me. This is something I would need to see the need for it here. Mm -hmm. And I would be happy to start a different group. Right now I'm doing a social anxiety support group. And I'm starting a women's body. Does
1: anyone show up to that?
2: (laughs) 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 It it, it has been a challenge. But believe it or not, I started it on Mm meetup.com. And I have over 100 hundred plus maybe 150 members now virtual members online <laughs> but again i mean it makes sense that a lot of the people who are interested in coming to this group yeah. have a real difficulty getting in the door because of their fears ar- about being around people mm. and this is just specific to social an- it's not just specific to social anxiety it could happen in a depression group people can be nervous
1: sure that's the. I think that's the beautiful irony of it, is that if you do get a bunch of depressed people together, it won't be this, like, shallow hole of misery. I think people will be like, oh, look, we're in company. And well,
3: I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, people not wanting to show when they're uncomfortable or anxious or, or scared. So, in a group where we know everyone coming into it is going to be anxious, mm-hmm. then people will let their guard down, let themselves be more vulnerable. You don't have to be strong. You can show what's going on inside.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think being with your people in that sense where people just there's that common that common feeling that we understand and we're not pushing you and you're okay here. We can really be real about how we're feeling. Yeah. I think that's very healing for people.
1: Well, sometimes when the situation is awkward, if the situation feels awkward and you say, oh, this feels kind of awkward right now. All of a sudden, it doesn't become awkward because you're addressing it, it out. Yes. Yeah, because you're calling out the truth of the situation. So if you get a bunch of people's social anxiety together, I can imagine being like, oh, yeah, I feel really anxious and nervous about being here. And then just bringing it to light makes it go away.
2: Yeah, believe it or not, just not avoiding but saying what's happening. Mm-hmm using that I don't know if that's an improv tool where you say what's happening.
1: Well, yeah, kind of facing the fear.
2: Yeah, facing the fear. Yeah. I um I found that just calling out the, labeling some of the feelings that people might be feeling and talking about it openly puts people at ease even if in the beginning everyone feels uncomfortable and it's like it's palpable. It goes down. It, it, it's normal, totally normal to feel nervous before going to a group session. Yeah.
1: There is a societal thing to like pretend everything's okay all the time, you know, even in any situation, you know, to point it out as like, oh, that's a faux pas, you know, or to like address the elephant in the room, even though everyone sees the big elephant. Right. Especially around family, and I think that's <laughs> generational to a degree. I think yes. younger generations are more
3: comfortable talking about their feelings, mm-hmm. and it's probably why older generations were probably there were a lot more depressed people, people with social
1: anxieties and things like that that were never discussed. Do you, you notice the, that in the different generations? Like, if you see someone older versus younger, do you see a difference in that?
2: I would say people are struggling now. You know, young people with social anxiety. Who have intense fears. And I've seen older people struggle intensely with not being able to talk about it. I think the main difference might be now there's this online community where you can access people all the time. Maybe that helps relieve some of that feeling like they're getting it out somewhere in their own, you know, for introverts or people who have trouble talking about. How they're feeling, at least there's an online community for right. people. Maybe the, that was not there in the past. Yeah. But I would say that the, the severity of anxiety, despite the age, can be really similar. Um, and it's such a growing community. I mean, even just seeing how many people sign up for a group, they want to be there, but getting them there, I mean, it's almost a joke that right. they want to be there, but there's something in the way of people being able to do that around other people.
1: I think. Uh, Definitely, it's more noticeable with men um, that the old, like Matt was saying, the older generation of a guy is to shove the emotion down, show no fear, show no emotion, show no, like weakness and emotion are uh, kind of a false equivalency that they've lived by. And our generation is more okay with even admitting to seeing a therapist or even like talking about this stuff.
2: Thankfully, it's the stigma isn't as strong. I hope because. It's, so, it's actually such a strength for a man to be able to show their emotions or to be able to let it out in front of other people and to model healthy expression of emotion. Or
1: even talk about it.
2: Or even talk about it. Yeah. Or to say, oh, I go to therapy. I think that's gotten a lot more accepted now than right. it's ever been.
1: With the social anxiety thing, do you feel like uh, um, the Internet and social networking and media is kind of making the younger generation more socially uh awkward and anxious yeah
2: it, it's possible and i'm just going to say my observation of seeing public school kids hanging out outside not talking but attached to their phone looking down not making any eye contact with mm-hmm. anyone i think that's totally normal now yeah so i think that would be hard you know then you're in front of a uh let's say a teenager who lives around here and someone that I've seen before, let's say I'm walking down and I see kids, they're not used to talking and having conversations face-to-face or all those social skills haven't been developed. They really don't need to. Uh, You know, online dating and all these things does help people. I do think people who would have much harder time meeting someone. And I I think that's a gift they're giving people who it's been hard to connect with others. But I also think that it's, the younger people who are just trying to, they have an opportunity to, um, build these skills. They haven't been, um, exercising these skills.
3: It'd be interesting to see if, because, you know, uh, more affluent families will, uh, give their kids cell phones and expose them to computers earlier, uh, than a family that doesn't have as less money. So it'd be interesting to see the comparison of, let's say a 15 year old who grew up in, uh, an affluent environment versus one that didn't
1: mm-hmm. how they've dealt socially mm-hmm. well the irony of that too to add on to that is that when you have poor neighborhoods they tend to live in closer quarters with each other and they mm-hmm. tend to be outside playing with each other more right where wealthy neighborhoods are more isolated
2: my guess would be and from anecdotal things i've heard from people that when you aren't attached to your tv or computer or you're more present with the people around you yeah and you're you're more able to practice real interpersonal skills and whether you have money or you don't have money i know people who have money who don't let their kids have their you know have their ipad and don't you know, put them in front of a TV and just practicing being with each other mm-hmm. in, a, in a real way is something that's so important.
1: Yeah, I, I read this uh, psychology test where they put a guy and a girl in a room together and they had them both put their cell phones in front of them on the table and they just let them talk for whatever it was, 20 minutes. And then they asked about the level of intimacy they felt with each other. Then they put people, same thing, but they weren't allowed to bring their cell phone in the room. And then sure enough, with these tests over and over and over, the people that didn't have their cell phones in front of them felt much more intimately connected with each other. Which just goes to prove that even the cell phone in the room, just knowing that it's there,
3: <laughs> makes that, people feel that
1: like... connection to another option uh,
3: instead of engaging with what's right there. You know that that cell phone has a whole world of everything
1: that's not happening right now. Yeah, exactly. There, it's almost like there's uh, another person in the room with you.
2: And I think people with social anxiety kind of m- might use their phone as a barrier to if they're in a situation they have like their safety object. Pure
1: intimacy. Yeah, yeah. and Pe- it's, people it, used to
3: smoke cigarettes instead,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think maybe holding your cell phone is a little <laughs> yeah. more healthy for you, a little healthier. But I think that having your phone just instead of it just gives you an out. You don't need to push through your, com- out. push out of your comfort zone, you're just focusing on your phone. And this is a real barrier to forming deeper relationships with people.
1: Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I was out on a date with a girl that I didn't really like that much, but um, I was on my phone and she said something really great. She goes, uh, I was out on, the, I was like doing something on my phone. She goes, oh, is there someone you'd rather be talking to now? <laughs> I was like, "Oh, that's perfect." All right. right, yeah, it's a good one. That's about all I got out of that relationship.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 nice to leave your phone, and if it's uncomfortable, if it's awkward, I'm guessing people are going to be more awkward now when they're talking because they're so connected to their phone. And it's okay. It's it, there's nothing wrong with having some awkwardness. It's part of being human, right? And yeah. just normalizing yeah, so that
3: eventually or hopefully if there's some real connection between the people get through that awkwardness, even if it begins with small talk or, or just saying that it's awkward or whatever it is. And you'll if there's a real connection between the two people, you'll get there.
2: Yes, exactly. And even if you don't know the person and you're not connected yet, it's part of seeing the other person is a human being that is imperfect, we all are, and that's part of sometimes what actually helps connect people to, to feel more comfortable to talk about real things with each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think given the choice, most people, most Americans would go back to the times of no cell phones and no internet? No. You think most people would rather be here?
2: I think there I know enough people who are so freaked out by not having their phone,
1: yeah. losing
2: it or misplacing it or It
1: sounds so unhealthy though. It is
2: so it's I think that it's not, it's almost become a living object where they yeah. feel like that's their life and it's their lifeline to knowing about everything and it's it's become out of control.
3: Yeah. But- Luckily for those people, soon enough your phone will be connected right to your body. yeah well that's where we're going yeah of course our technology you won't have to carry around something it'll just be strapped to you or inside your skin or
2: yeah you know
1: so those people don't have to worry about losing their phones I wonder if I'm in the minority because I really would prefer to be like maybe in the 70s without any of this stuff even though I use it all the time and it's amazing but I just feel like uh, everything would be a little more present and less Mm -hmm. complicated
2: do you like to write letters? Do you think that, you know, that's something that's been missing now that we have all these? Um,
1: oh, yeah. I want to I go back to carrier pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with emails. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I was talking about even the mail. Things don't come. You know, you don't write someone like a handwritten letter anymore because yeah. we just, we don't need to.
1: Mm-hmm. Even in the days of typewriters, you know, and you get a typewritten letter, it doesn't have that intimacy of when someone would handwrite it. Yeah. Yeah, I miss letters. Write some letters,
3: Gary. Or <laughs> listeners, send your letters to Gary's email address. <laughs> email your letters. Write a letter, scan it, and send it in <laughs> an email. I'm with you, though, Gary. I, I would love to be back in those times. There's some amazing things about technology and ways we can connect in ways we were never able to, but I, I miss that as well. You're with me on that? I'm with you. I
1: wonder how many other people are with us on that. Julie?
2: I, so when I, I answered quickly about what I what the sense I get from everyone that I'm around yeah but I do think that whenever I forget my phone and I'm not I I'm, I went out the whole day and I didn't have to think about it or worry about it I feel like I wasn't connected to everyone it was actually very nice it was a nice break to feel like I could just freely do. Yeah. Whatever I wanted without feeling like I needed to check in or know what Mm -hmm. was happening. So I think there's a real freedom that comes with not feeling so connected all the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, just the fact that you forgot your phone is impressive. Most people never even forget it.
2: Yeah. I I give myself breaks. I, I intentionally will say I'm not bringing it at the gym. I leave it home. I don't want to be thinking about it. And being mindful and present is really just being exactly where you are in this moment.
1: Yes. And
2: that's very, very important with just reconnecting with yourself and managing anxiety.
1: And that's the opposite of when you have your phone, even in your pocket, because your mind's always connected to your pocket. Yeah, I I mean, I was
3: thinking about this yesterday. I was doing laundry, and I was going from... Are you just bragging that you have clean clothing? I I do. (laughs) I I really needed it. And I was going downstairs from moving the, the laundry from the washer to the dryer, just going down to the basement of my building. Yeah. Ten minutes, and I grabbed my phone. And I was like, why am I doing this? I don't even get service in the basement of, of the building, but I <laughs> felt like security. I needed it, it on me, that ten minutes, what if? You know.
2: Just that time to do nothing, and I have a big interest in mindfulness, and mm. it's very important to, it's in my practice of just taking care of myself and mm-hmm. checking in about when I need something and feeling how my body, the energy is. I think about doing nothing is so healing sometimes and restorative. So just th- that 10 minutes, someone might say, oh, I have 10 minutes without my phone, waiting for my laundry. You have 10 minutes to just chill out. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm also being mindful that, that those 10 minutes for someone who's anxious or someone who's depressed can feel really uncomfortable so just acknowledging that maybe it's not easy to sit with yourself for 10 minutes but you're over time you get more used to doing nothing and that's actually something really good for your body to not have to you know think about the phone or think about that other anything just be in that space with yourself
1: yeah even just paying attention to your breath yeah so good for you
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Before we wrap up here, I want to ask you Is there something that attracted you to psychology? Was it, were there uh, issues with you?
2: That's a great question. I, surprisingly, was nothing that happened to me. I've heard a lot of psychologists who they had, you know, something in their family or something that happened to them that attracted them to psychology. I loved hearing people's stories growing up ahead of my time. Just a curious person. Curious. I would would be home um, in elementary school watching like Jerry Springer, watching Maury Povett. My mom would come home and say, what are you doing? You're too young to be listening to this stuff. I just loved hearing people's like real life stories. Mm -hmm. And it was natural. I just knew that I wanted to help people and wanting to listen to really what's happening. I didn't want like the fantasy. I wanted just, you know, what are people really like? Um, And it was natural for people to open up to me from a young age. And so I just followed that path. And it's felt really like a natural progression.
1: So you're one of the few psychologists that didn't have psychological issues.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know. Which isn't
1: a bad thing. Yeah, which
2: isn't a bad thing. But I think that it helps. You know, every psychologist has... Has something that maybe attracts them to the field, and then they can relate in a in a more um, in a deeper way.
1: Yeah, exactly. The metaphor I used uh, was like, "Wouldn't you want a mechanic that is obsessed with cars? You know, yes, like yes. someone that's obsessed with their own <clears throat> mind? Like that's the person you want to be seeing."
2: Or someone who's been through. So then the other flip side of it is just because someone's been through exactly what you've been through mm, doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they necessarily can help you more than someone who hasn't. Yeah. But maybe they, you know, some some people, maybe they can. So I think there's both sides to having the direct experience with, with a difficulty or some life experience.
1: Yeah, it's a different skill set between knowing it and being able to teach it. Or parlay it in some way. Yes. But also teaching is such a great way to learn, if you can teach.
2: Yes, yes. I love teaching. And that's part of the group that I, that I started doing, and I'm really hoping the attendance picks up. Mm-hmm. The Social Anxiety Support Group is part teaching and part support where you're able to share. It's not much sharing because it's really meant to teach tools. And a lot of times just to get there is hard enough.
1: What if everyone comes in the room and the room is pitch black at first? <laughs> then you slowly bring up the dimmer.
2: And to really <laughs> to really turn up the, the fear or just the uncertainty of the situation.
1: Yeah, like when they get there, they don't have to see or, or be seen by anybody. And then as they get a little more comfortable, the light slowly goes on and then they start to see everybody. Well, it's kind of a, <laughs> a metaphor for what, what does happen, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's an opportunity to also just getting there is half the work, just showing up. Even if you don't say anything and just show up, you're already doing the homework. So I encourage people just to take that chance and see what it's like. and, Mm -hmm. And just even if you feel like you might not be able to stay the whole time, give yourself a certain amount of time, you might stay for 20 minutes and just try it out.
1: But just showing up is a big part of the work.
2: It is, yeah. yeah.
1: For, for anything we do,
3: right?
2: It, is, it yeah. is. Just getting to where you have to go, being there and being present where mm-hmm. you are, even if it's uncomfortable. You know, even our jobs sometimes, we may not want to go, but just getting there is half mm-hmm. the battle. And then once you're there, believe it or not, you just, things sometimes come into motion.
1: Mm-hmm. You ever do uh, Skype therapy? Have you ever given Skype therapy?
2: I so I have had interest in people wanting to have Skype sessions. And for me, I don't feel comfortable unless I've met the person in in person, mm-hmm. and I'm able to have a first session in person and really build that therapeutic relationship and get to know that person. And you know, it's varies person to person if you feel comfortable. But I think what I would say is the someone can get the most out of therapy if they are seeing someone they can consistently see that's accessible to them in their radius. I think if you're seeing someone outside of state, outside of the state, and you aren't able to really see them as consistently, it it isn't in your best interest. Mm -hmm. That's my perspective, but I'm it depends on person to person if I'd be open to it.
1: Right, yeah. That was some of the... I had a therapist when I live up, lived upstate. And then when I moved down here to Brooklyn, uh, we s- kept seeing each other for a little while. And we'd do Skype sessions. And I was so surprised at how powerful they were. Because I didn't have to like put on my social face and go outside of the house and travel. I could just stay like in the safety of my bedroom and talk to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was, and then when it was done, I just shut up and I'm like already in my safe space. I'm in my bed. Like that doesn't get any more safe than that.
2: So, but sometimes too safe isn't also as effective. And let's say, let's say it would have been harder for you to get up and go. Right. That's the other flip side Mm -hmm. of it. Doesn't mean that I'm sure it's intimate and she really hears you in your safe, in your comfortable space of your home. But then also, what I tell people, because a lot of times people with social anxiety, they're, They would love to just speak on the phone or do Skype because it's not you know, it's a little harder for them to get out of the house and go see you. And I say a lot of times that's actually what you need is practice getting up, getting out. Right. So I think it depends, but I I do think you get a lot of valuable information from someone when you speak to them in their own home.
1: That's true, yeah. It depends on the person's problem. Depressed people definitely need to just get up and get out of the house. yeah Yeah. social anxiety people too i'd imagine
2: yeah
1: opposite action
2: opposite action opposite
1: action that's a good tool um are there any did we miss anything are there any tools that uh they just have to come see you
2: yeah i'm we're not
1: not giving it all away for (laughs) free here
2: right (laughs) but i am accepting new patients Mm -hmm. and i have a private practice on the upper east side located on 90th um, between park and Lexington. Nice. And I have a website that people feel free to check out.
1: Yeah, Julie Groveman. That's going to be uh, in the show notes. Yes. A little clickable link.
2: Okay, great. It's just
1: juliegroveman.com, right?
2: It's Dr. Julie Groveman. Dr. 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 Julie. Yes, oh, a so drjuliegroveman.com.
1: Yes. Yeah, that'll be in the show notes. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. This is great.
1: Yeah.